Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 if you're turning there. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We're walking chronologically through the life of Jesus, and uh, we come to the portion in the Gospels as we look at all four Gospels in that chronological life of Jesus, where, where somehow a man named Nicodemus has gotten wind of Jesus. We don't know for sure how. Uh, We spent time two weeks ago in in the miracle of Cana of Galilee, the first miracle Jesus performed, and last week in his clearing of the temple. And there may have been other things that Jesus performed because the Gospels say there were many other things not able to be contained in this book, which Jesus did. So we don't know all that happened. There may be some things that are not recorded in the Gospels. But someplace along that line, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Sanhedrin, got wind of Jesus. And the scripture says that he came to Jesus at night to have a conversation, to talk to him. We know that he didn't recognize him as the Son of God, as God, but rather as a teacher. And he comes to him to have that conversation. And we pick it up here in John chapter 3. And the response of Jesus to him is interesting. In verse 3, Jesus answers him after he came and declared that that I understand you must be a teacher. No one can, can have the favor of God and do the signs that you do and not have the favor of God. And Jesus immediately says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't think we can really get the full impact of what a shock that must have been in some ways to Nicodemus to try to process what Jesus just said. He just couldn't put it all together. It didn't fit in any categories that he had. But I think we can 
can infer from the passage that he did understand after he had some discourse with Jesus that at the end of that discourse, the first part of that discourse, he had, he had come to the understanding that Jesus was talking about spiritual new birth. We really see that in the passage. When, when Jesus talked about being born again, Nicodemus said, how can somebody be born a second time? And Jesus has conversation with him. And I think we get to the point with Nicodemus and Jesus gets to the point with Nicodemus that Nicodemus understands he's talking about spiritual birth here. But it still didn't all make sense to Nicodemus. Really what he was talking about, although Jesus didn't say it, was talking about what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 to us. When Jesus or when uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says that once you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now have come to life. If you read that passage, it says that. And what he was talking about here was passing from death to life, being born again, new life coming to Nicodemus. But Nicodemus didn't understand it here. But he did understand enough to ask the question this question and this is what I want to look at this morning and this is what I want to try to answer this morning in Nicodemus response to Jesus he says this how can these things be in other words how can spiritual birth happen how can we be born again spiritually how can this take place and what I want to look at is what in the way in which Jesus responded to him There's a progression, really, in the way Jesus responds to him as we read it now, as we begin. And Pastor Jason read it to us in verses 10 and on following there. There's really a progression that happens. First of all, in that progression, Jesus is somewhat like a witness. In other words, if someone were to come to you who've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, and you were going to try to tell them, what that experience is like. The first few verses, that's really kind of how Jesus uh, responds to Nicodemus. It's as though he were a witness explaining it to Nicodemus. But then in verse uh, 13 and 14, really, he, he begins to change from one who is telling Nicodemus about what that new birth is to one who begins to talk about himself. He, trans, or he progresses from the process of how new birth happens as a witness to the basis of that new birth. In other words, the, the basis of why there can be a new birth. The process would be us sharing our testimony, the process of how somebody comes to new life and how personally we might come to new life, how how we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life and how we see it in our own lives. But Jesus now is making a progression from that process to the basis, the basis of how that new life happens. Nicodemus says, how can it happen? Jesus moves to say why it is possible that it can happen. And that's what I want to center on here this morning. As Jesus addresses the basis, because you see, Nicodemus' problem was this. How can we be born again anew spiritually? How can it happen? How can that happen? How can God do that? That was a problem for Nicodemus. How it could happen, the actual way it can happen. But Jesus addresses 
another problem that is just as much of a problem. And what he addresses is why it can happen. What makes it possible to happen? What barrier has to be removed so that in fact we can pass from death to life by God's Spirit moving upon us? Because that was a barrier that Nicodemus didn't understand very well. He didn't see that barrier as much as the barrier of God performing the miracle and doing it. In other words, how can God do this? How can we come to new life? It's a problem. It's okay for Nicodemus to voice that. But what Jesus answers is, what's the basis that makes it possible? What other obstacle has to be removed? And the obstacle that Jesus addresses is, that has to be removed, is the wrath of God. In other words, God's wrath towards sin. That's where Jesus takes us and where Jesus takes Nicodemus. And that's what I want to center in. And it's going to take us to an Old Testament passage this morning. We're going to look at the book of Numbers, chapter 21, if you want to turn there in just a moment. And we're going to read that. Because that really is where Jesus takes this conversation. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is a reference from the Old Testament. Now, remember what we've said before as we've been looking at the life of Jesus. Remember that we said many times, just so that we get it in our mind, when Jesus was born as a baby, fully man, fully God, he didn't look up from his cradle or from his manger in Bethlehem and contemplate how he created the heavens. Though he is the creator of the heavens. He's fully God. But there's a way in which that was bracketed so that Jesus literally grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Jesus grew up fully man. And so we come to this passage and what, what we need, I think, to see the appreciation of it, Jesus takes and pulls out an Old Testament passage in the book of Numbers and brings it here to answer Jesus, or to answer Nicodemus' question. Why? Because he was fully God? Well, he was. But I think we still need to see the picture of him somehow bracketing the fact that he's fully God so that he can live fully as a man. And I can see where Jesus knew this because he had studied the Scriptures. Because he knew the Scriptures. Because he connected the dots of the Scriptures. And what was happening is Jesus was seeing himself in the Scriptures. He was seeing himself in the Old Testament. And as he takes this passage in Numbers and brings it over now to his conversation with Nicodemus, he has, he has witnessed himself in that passage as being fully man studying the scriptures and he's connected the fact that this is about him that helps me in this whole incarnation experience to see Jesus in that realm that he connected the scripture because one of the most powerful things I think in our faith is as we do the same thing young people if as you begin to see that this is one book one story and that's what Jesus saw it as one story, a story of him. He had made that transition 
in his growing in stature and favor with God and man and his understanding of who he was, Jesus had made that transition to see that he knew that what the Old Testament pointed to was him. The Old Testament was about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of him. And so he pulls this passage now out of Numbers. Let's look at it in Numbers chapter 21, beginning at verse 4. And what I want to see is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. When Nicodemus asked the question, how can this be? He wasn't intending to get this answer. But it's the answer that Jesus felt he needed to see and he needed to have. And it's the answer we want to look at today. And it's a powerful answer for us. Listen to what it says. We'll read it together, beginning at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. I think you understand this is the children of Israel. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. When Nicodemus asked, How can this be? Jesus takes him there. That's what the reference is in John 3 when he says Moses lifted up the serpent. That's what it comes out of. That's what it flows out of here. It's interesting, isn't it? That of all the pictures, of all the pictures he could have given Nicodemus in the Old Testament, and there are many, many pictures of himself, many places Jesus saw himself and knew it to be about him. Why of all of those does he pick out this passage and bring it over in answer to Nicodemus's question? There were lots of pointers, there were lots of types, there were lots of shadows in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And of all of those, look what he takes. Look what he likens himself to. He likens himself to a snake. So, you have to ask the question, what do we see? Why this picture, Jesus? Why is this the one you pulled up? Of all that you could have pulled over, do you pull this one? Let's look at it. First of all, in this story, the people are bitten. Um, And without intervention, they're going to die. The children of Israel have been grumbling. The wrath of God comes upon the children of Israel. And there there are snakes all over. And if any of those snakes bite them, they're going to die. Unless there's some intervention. Unless something intervenes, they will die. They are already in trouble. The picture is they are doomed except there's an intervention, except something comes to save them. And certainly it's a picture of us, isn't it? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The the wrath of God is against all ungodliness. Just as it was here among the children of Israel, it was there. 
The second thing is that snakes picture are a picture of God's wrath on the people. They represent a curse on the people. They represent the curse on the people of Israel. There. The curse that has fallen. And, and then thirdly, simply, the remedy is found in what? The remedy is found in looking to the lifted up. What? The remedy is found in looking to the lifted up curse. Isn't that true? The lifted up snake, which represented the curse. So how can the remedy be found in looking to the lifted up curse? It's interesting in this passage. Look at something with me. Look at verse 8. It was not a literal snake or serpent on the staff. It says, make a fiery serpent. I mean, Moses didn't create a snake that was alive and hanging on his pole. It was in the likeness of what? It was in the likeness of a serpent. In the likeness of a snake is what Moses lifted up. It wasn't a literal one in that sense, but the likeness of one. And that represented the curse. And literally what they were told to do is there's a curse upon you. You're all infected with it. You're all going to die unless you look to the curse that I lift up. You will die. So what is that all about? What is it that God would have them look to a curse? Because that's what it's saying to the children of Israel. Well, we read in the passage in John, it talks about and it likens the lifting up of the curse to the lifting up of the Son of Man. And all who look to Him, all who believe in Him, will have eternal life. Where's the parallel? Where's the connection between the lifted up curse and the lifted up Son of Man, Jesus? Listen to what Scripture says. Listen to what it says to us in the New Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.2 For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.3 God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Isn't it interesting that it says God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man? The likeness of the serpent? The likeness of sinful man? You see the connection? You see the parallel? And what happened to that serpent? It represented the curse. And what happened to the Son of Man? He literally became a curse. He wasn't a curse himself. He was in the likeness of sinful man, but he wasn't sinful. He was without sin. But he became a curse. The scripture says he became a curse for us. And so you see, Moses lifts up the pole. He lifts up the serpent. He lifts up the representative of the curse. They're to look to the curse So we too are to look to the one who was cursed. 
the one who became a curse for us. And if we look to him, if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. We will be saved, just like the children of Israel were saved, just like that they were saved from the sin. They were saved from the wrath. They were saved from the curse. We are saved because we look to the one who became a curse for us that we don't have to be the curse. That's the gospel. Now, it's interesting. Look at this text a minute. Look at the context of this. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus tells him he has to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He, he tries to do some more conversation with Jesus. He asks, how can this be his question? Jesus answers in a different way. But it is incredibly important to know why Jesus answered it the way he did. It's interesting in the passage, if you go back to John, look with me in the book of John, when Jesus says something to him here. Just before we talk about the lifting up of the servant, listen what Jesus says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And actually, begin in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Nicodemus is saying, how can this be? He's wanting to go deeper in heavenly things. I mean, Jesus has told him earthly things. He said, you can't understand that, Nicodemus. You're, you're blind. You're not seeing this. He doesn't take him deeper. He doesn't take him deeper into the things that only Christ knows being in heaven. He doesn't take him deeper into the intricacies of the whole process of, of how God brings life to a person. How he takes a dead person and brings him to life. He doesn't go into that. He doesn't go into the heavenly things. He doesn't take him deeper there. Where does he take him? Where does he take him? Takes him, one who isn't seeing, one who is blind, one who is not responding, back to the gospel, doesn't he? He takes him back to himself. He takes him back to what we just talked about. Back to who he is and what he's done and the fact he's become a curse. Shouldn't we do the same? You see, the means by which God brings people to life, the means by which He causes them to be born again, the means by which He has declared that will happen is in seeing the gospel, seeing what Christ has done, making connections and seeing that Christ, things like Christ, becomes a curse. He wasn't a curse. He was in the likeness of sinful man, but he became the curse. And so we look to the curse. You see where Jesus takes Nicodemus? Just where we ought to take people like that. People like Nicodemus who seem to be blind, who seem not to be getting it, who seem not to understand. It seems when they read Scripture, they read things like you must be born again. We tell them they need to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life and it's though a glaze comes over their eyes. What do you do? Write them off? Say, well, forget you. No, Jesus didn't write Nicodemus off. He took him back to the gospel. Took him back to what he was doing and what he came to do. It's what he says here. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus has descended. 
and he tells Nicodemus why he's descended. When Nicodemus asks how can this be, he tells him why he came. We need to do the same. And God marvelously, as we declare the gospel, causes blinded eyes to be opened again and again and again and brings life where there's dead and death. What I want to do this morning is I want to I want to share an illustration of that in the life of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher who preached in the 1800s. He was a powerful preacher and and has written volumes of works that are continued to be quoted today. But Spurgeon was 16 years old when he wrote this. 16-year-old boy, January 6th, 1850. Listen to Spurgeon's conversion. Listen to how God brought him to life, how he caused him to be born again and have new life and pass from death to life. He writes these words to us. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up. I suppose we all know what that is, don't we? Snowed up. I know. We'll just start calling it, we're snowed up when we cancel church here. At last, the very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of the sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, out of the book of Isaiah. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, now looking, don't take a, deal, a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you looking to yourselves. But it's not no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin about ten minutes or so, 
He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life. Miserable in death. If you don't obey my text. If you don't obey it now, this moment, you, or if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the clouds were gone, the darkness had rolled away, and the moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them the promises of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith what looks alone to him. Spurgeon heard the words. The words that said, look. Look. That's what Jesus was doing with Nicodemus. Look. Look. Look to the one who has become a curse for you. This morning, I hope that you know what it is to look to that curse. That you know what it is, as Spurgeon knew, to rest in that and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That you're resting there. The scripture says, and he who believes in him, he who looks to him, and sees as eternal life. Look. Look even as we sing this morning. Let's stand together.
fast forward you in the book of John a ways to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Listen to what the scripture says in John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And then it says this, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. Don't you suppose that all of a sudden what Jesus said when he said, just as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up? There was no way Nicodemus could understand that when Jesus spoke it in John 3. But he spoke it anyway. Because there was a day when the dots were going to get connected. A day when the eyes were going to come open. And he was going to see. I hope you see this morning. I hope you see. I hope when I say, I hope you see, you know what I mean. You see. Once I was blind and now I see. That's my prayer. And I hope you just see more of it as you go along. But maybe there's some here this morning who say, I I just don't see. I don't see. Keep looking. Keep looking at Christ. Keep looking. That's the way you come to see. Let's pray. Father, Nicodemus evidently kept looking. He pushed through his confusion. He pushed through his lack of understanding. I'm sure it must have been somewhat of a frustrating experience for him, but he kept looking. He kept looking at Christ. And one day his eyes were opened. Oh Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that you're the one who brings us to life as we see. Brings us to see. And I pray this morning, Father, that 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 resonates in the hearts of many who see today. But if there's one here who does not yet see, even this morning they will look to Christ. They will look and see. See that He became a curse for them. And in looking they were saved, Father. They're born again to new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. It's my custom these last weeks to just stay up front. If you'd like to visit, I'll be here and I'd be delighted to visit with you. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.